and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today is crew member Jara. Make it so! And our guest, Jamala. Hi! Yeah, so Jamala and I and Grace first met in 2014 at Geek Girl Con when we put on some super awesome panels. And I am very excited to have them here on the show today. Uh, they're an awesome Star Trek fan and will be great to talk about Picard. Thank you, Jara. Jamala, do you want to talk a little bit about how you first got interested in Star Trek? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I'm a 70s kid, so it was always on in the background on television, right? Like the original series was always... And you just grow up hearing those Star Trek sounds, and which is funny to me because walking through my house today, my mom was in the other room. My elderly retired mother happens to live with me, and she's she's watching all the reruns right now. So whenever she's watching a Star Trek rerun, I can totally hear it in the background. But the first time I actually knew I was an actual fan of Star Trek was Best of Both Worlds. And here's the reason why. I was... I think the year that it aired was the summer of 1990, I believe. And just to let you know how old I am, that was when I graduated from high school. So I saw the first half of Best of Both Worlds, and then I was going to be leaving Seattle for the first time ever to go live in another state. And I was freaked out that I wasn't going to be able to see the second half of the show. Because I was like, what if they don't have Star Trek in Rochester? Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, this was before the Internet, before YouTube, before all that stuff. So, so yeah. And that was when I really knew that I was a fan and not just it wasn't just a show that I was watching. So I, I later found some folks at the school that I was attending at the time. That's also where I attended my first Star Trek convention was in Rochester, New York, of all places. I can imagine being terrified about feeling like you were moving somewhere where Star Trek didn't exist. (laughs) I mean, besides California, which is where I'm originally from, I hadn't done a lot of traveling. It was just scary. I didn't know how it really worked, you know, what stations carried it, what was going on. So I was just afraid I wasn't going to get to see it anymore. And I didn't realize how hard that was going to hit me until it actually hit me. But yeah, I found a crew, found a a room, a TV room to watch it with other Trek fans. So that's how I found my people in the first place when I was in a completely unknown place. It was a lot of fun. Mm, Nice. So this episode, we are going to be talking about the first season of Star Trek Picard. But first, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do. As usual... We remind you that our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get some awesome rewards from thanks on social media, up to silly watch-along commentaries. Just last week, we opened up our watch-along to all of our patrons, and not just some of the upper tiers, and had a great time. And what did we watch? (laughs) Oh, a piece of the action. So much fun uh, to hang out with everybody and, and have a little fun when so many of us are uh, self-isolating. So if you'd like to join us on Patreon, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash women at warp. This episode in particular is also supported by Text Expander, and we will be talking about them a little bit more later. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now upcoming, our next episode is also going to be Star Trek Picard related, and we're going to be talking about the Picard novel by Una McCormick, The Last Best Hope. 
Yeah, so you can join our book club discussion at goodreads.com by searching Women at Warp under the groups. And we've already had some really great listener comments so far, and I hope you can join us reading the book and join us for the discussion in a couple weeks. We'd also like to remind you that Women at Warp does have a blog, so if you are interested in writing a piece for the blog, Star Trek related, of course, you can check that out at our website, womenatwarp.com. And uh, in this time where finances might be low for people, we can say that we are able to provide a stipend for our writers. It's a small one, but thanks to our patrons, we make sure that we do pay all of our writers. Anything I missed? No, I think that pretty much covers it. Fantastic. So, Picard Season 1. Spoilers. Spoilers. For sure. Red alert. (laughs) (laughs) We are not going to talk about this for 45 minutes to an hour without giving you some spoilers. Let's just say that the list of things we have that we all want to talk about is very long. (laughs) Let's start overall. What were our big takeaways? What are our thoughts at the end of the season? Well, I think that I... uh, Well, okay, so maybe I will just start by setting up the context for where we were when the season started, because there was a lot of anticipation. And I think that... You know, it's a bit different than when Discovery started, where I know that we were very wary of things and we were still wary. But there was also there's watching these shows in the age of social media is such an interesting experience where you're also kind of afraid of like, am I going to be on the off side of the fan reaction and end up getting trolled like nonstop? And I think that... I was cautiously optimistic going in. I had a pretty strongly favorable reaction to the first three episodes. And then more nuanced up and downs as the rest of the season progressed. Overall, a pretty positive takeaway. But I also felt much more comfortable by the end of it expressing that nuanced opinion. And I'm really grateful to the people in the corners of the internet that were able to kind of navigate that respectful dialogue. Uh, It was not everyone. And regardless of for our listeners, whether you were like, I loved everything about this show, or you were really horribly disappointed, your individual response is is valid, um, as long as it's not, you know, just fist banging a table and saying that Seven wasn't supposed to be queer. So yeah. (laughs) I love the show overall. I'll just say that right up front. I think it's interesting, the comment you made about watching Star Trek in the age of social media. It's a completely different experience from, you know, back in the day when Deep Space Nine and and TNG and Voyager were all on television, but we weren't so hyper-connected about everybody giving their own opinion about exactly what should or should not have happened. I love the show. I love looking at the show. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Just seeing all of the the things that they've done for the special effects and everything you look at on screen is completely out of this world. And I found it interestingly complicated, you know, mixing mythology with sort of the way that that one character described it as news. As someone who has actually been a journalist, I thought that was kind of interesting and, and a bit funny. You know, because news is something you're supposed to know know every day. What's the thing that you're supposed to know that's going to help you get through the rest of your day or the rest of your week? And so if news is like, an AI is coming to to eat us all up and we're all going to die. I mean, that's pretty, I don't know, that was pretty overall (laughs) scary and, 
an interesting direction that they went in with the whole premise of what AI is going to mean to human beings when we get to that point in time in the first place. So that was the storytelling I thought was really fascinating and interesting. You know, I have my ideas about particular characters, but I can save that for when you get into, you know, more detailed stuff. But overall, huge, huge fan of what they accomplished this season. So I was pretty happy. So I think it's probably safe to say that among the people on this episode and (laughs) our crew, that I was perhaps the person with the most anxiety Mm. going into (laughs) this series. It's it's a weird thing to try to explain, and it almost sometimes feels silly when I try, but Next Gen was such a formative show for me, and these characters meant so much to me growing up, that I really took to heart, I guess, the ending that we got in All Good Things. I know we had four movies afterwards, but I look at All Good Things as the ending for this crew, because I don't want to necessarily talk about those movies. And it showed us our main characters continuing to go on and explore the galaxy together. They were all still together. And I was nervous that coming back to them, however many years later, would harm that idea in some way, that that it wouldn't be the happy ending I wanted it to be. And I'm not talking necessarily from the shipper perspective, although I am biased in that direction as well. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I was just very, very nervous that the the thing I held so dear wouldn't, like like some of the impact would be taken away. Yet those stories still exist. Those seven years of next gen are still there. I can watch them anytime I want. It It made me nervous for these characters that, I felt helped form who I am. I sound very odd, I know. But I am still, I think, processing what I think of the story of this season. I'm not sure yet. I think it's very well made. I think it's beautiful. I think it definitely has some blind spots, which we're going to talk about. But, I mean, they they made a show that kept me coming back, not only because I was recapping it, but at the same time, at, at this point in my life, I have so much like sci-fi background that I didn't have 25, 30 years ago when I was first watching Next Gen that I feel like it was also kind of predictable. Like I, mm-hmm. I saw that first trailer, or maybe it was the second trailer at New York Comic Con, and I left that panel feeling like I knew what the entire season story was going to be, and I was pretty darn close. So yeah, it's a pretty dense series, which is why we have so many themes to talk about. But I think that when you actually sort of lay out the developments of the major plot threads that it actually is fairly linear, I think a lot of the density has to do with, you know, trying to insert dramatic irony and flashbacks and just and lay it out in a way that is maybe more narratively interesting. But but yeah, I would agree. I think it's a really well made show. And certainly, you know, we had some listener comments from other folks. I will say Krista, who said, I've had the same question all season. Where the heck is Beverly? And why is her name not even mentioned? Like, not even once. It's like they were going out of their way to not say her name. Yeah, like they even say Worf and Jordy, And in the the novel as well, you see Worf and Jordy, And actually, you do see Beverly show up briefly. But I was, we'll say, like, going into it, 
I understood that Patrick Stewart didn't want this to be a TNG reunion show, but I was sad about it and kind of wished it was. But I am grateful for what the show was separate from that. And I think it was a valuable thing to put into the world on its own. The idea that this is not a next-gen reunion, okay, fine. But you're bringing back for this series, the first series, four out of the seven characters. They're all white. Yes. You're leaving out the two people of color and one of the women. And the woman you're including is because she's married to one of the male characters. Yeah. And she didn't even get equal credit status. No. That that frustrated me. There was also uh, one of the producers, I believe it was Heather Caden, said that they only wanted to bring back characters whose stories were important to Picard's. And it was just the, the phrasing of that that really rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> Anyway, we don't need to get into that right now. <laughs> yeah, but I think that certainly that's a, a fair representation of um, of a group of fans and uh, that it bothered some people more than others. And it's, you know, uh, it's very clear that this was never going to be that, like, TNG part two, t- Star Trek, the next generation, the next generation. <laughs> the next, next generation. But it doesn't mean that we can't be sad imagining that it could have been. But um, like I said, I still loved it on its own. Well, yeah, it's one of those things where that that's what I mean by blind spots. Like, I don't think it was mm-hmm. intentional that Star Trek or, or that the, the writers left out two black men and a woman. No. I think they it just happened that way because of the characters they wanted to use. And I think that happened a lot throughout this series, that there were just blind spots that people didn't even think and realize were problematic until maybe some fans pointed them out. And I think that has something to do with writers focusing way more on the story than, Mm -hmm. you know, the actual premise of what Star Trek is, which is to uh, sort of, I don't know, be this really amazing representation of what we can be as humanity if we're inclusive and we're diverse and we're all working together in a a future that's a lot better than the one, than our present. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you have to care about it enough to want to really put it in the story in that way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, from what I see of interviews and looking at what people are saying on Twitter and whatnot, it's just not a part, it's not in the forefront of their brain. So, and I'm not excusing that in any way, shape or form. I'm just saying it's usually what happens when you have, you know, a lot of white people in charge of telling the story, putting it to screen and, and putting it out there in the first place. Yeah. And I think maybe in this case, you, you may have had a feeling, I'm sure not deliberate, but the, a feeling that like, well, we you put in place a diverse cast and the rest just falls into place, but that actually isn't true. And certainly, you know, we've seen bumps in Discovery as well, but I think Discovery has tried to be more explicit about what they're trying to depict in terms of challenging representation in terms of gender and race and uh, queer identity. And uh, Picard maybe just put that a bit on the backseat. Very much so. So... Anybody have any favorite new characters? Two characters that are kind of my favorite. Rafi. I enjoyed yeah. Rafi. It's complicated how they were sort of portraying this character who was very much a functioning addict, you know, of mm-hmm. sorts. And she had a lot, of, a lot of baggage, a lot of things that she needed to work through. But she was also incredibly smart and incredibly inventive 
you know, she could be motherly when she wanted to. She could be your best friend when she wanted to. And I just, I appreciated that sort of, I guess, I, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to call it wholeness because we only got to see a few sides of her, but I appreciated a lot of those sort of what you probably would have thought of back in the 90s as being portrayed in Star Trek as negative. Now everybody's got their flaws <laughs> to some mm-hmm. degree or another, but hers um, just stood out that much more because she had, you know, her little thing that she was token off of. And then I want to just give a shout out to Space Legolas. I mean, come on. <laughs> I needed some more flips. I know his name is in Space Legolas, but it, Elnor, which sounds just as Lord of the Rings as everything else, but. Yeah, I really enjoyed him. And I thought that they did a good job using just enough of him, but maybe almost maybe a little too little. Like I would Mm -hmm. watch a spinoff with Seven and him on a Fenris Rangers mission in a hot flat second because I really enjoyed his presence. You know, I enjoyed that whole idea of being so honest. There's nothing else you can say, but what you Mm -hmm. actually think, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, besides Picard, because Picard is my space dad, you know, I grew up with Next Generation. I love TNG and that's been my sort of original crew my entire life. So watching them spin off and everything has been an amazing and fun journey. But as far as new characters go, those were my two new favorite characters. Mm hmm. I really love uh, Rafi. I like Elnor, too. I think the way he was used was a little up and down. Um, Like, he got separated from the group really early and then kind of reunited at the end, but it's kind of awkward. But I love the scenes that he's in. I will name two smaller characters. One is Laris, the cool ex-Tal Shiar lady at the beginning, um, slash Irish Romulan housekeeper. She's the best. I wish we had got to see more of her, but I think she's super awesome. And then uh, Kestra Troy Riker was very endearing and I think a pretty well-written teen tween character. And I, I will I will fight to defend her. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I will fight to defend her too. I thought she was a great character. I absolutely love Laris as well. I wish... She had forced her way to go with them because she would have mm-hmm. been amazing. I also really was intrigued by Ramda mm-hmm. and wanted to know a lot more about her, which I'm I'm sad. We didn't get to, to learn more about her and her history and her story. Yeah. All right. So we started talking about this a little bit, but the Picard and the idea of Star Trek. There are a lot of there, – there's a lot of talk. In online, on social media, about is this a positive vision of the future? Is this even really Star Trek, guys? Can we have a positive message in a show that is has characters going through a difficult time? Because I, I think that's that's where we are in Picard. I also think that's where we are in Discovery. I think at the end of the day, we got several positive messages. We got a message about how our meaning as uh, humanity is defined by mortality and the the need to acknowledge that moments are precious. We got a message about tolerance, sometimes slightly muddied at times, like by evil demon seductor synth in the second to last episode, <laughs> or, you know, just maybe lost sight of, and about how like shutting down scientific research is bad and, and we should strive for more scientific knowledge. 
And so, yeah, I think at the end we did, although I really wasn't sure, like around Nepenthe, episode seven or whenever that was, the Troy Riker episode. I was feeling really freaking bleak about things, and I felt like the show was giving me a lot more anxiety about the world than Mm. normally I would go to Star Trek for comfort, but it turned around. Mm. Is that because of the way we tell stories now on TV, do you think? I feel like we've talked about this a little bit with Discovery, but like when Next Gen was airing, you got a story in one, maybe two episodes, Mm -hmm. right? So you had your you're uplifting, everything is solved, we're all back to normal now at the end of your 42 minutes. And now it takes 10 episodes sometimes to get that that resolution. Yeah, this felt to me like you could plot the narrative very clearly on, like, do you remember when you were in high school English and you had to learn, like, the Shakespearean comedy versus tragedy with, like, the pyramid that's, like, Mm -hmm. inverted? And this was 10 episodes, and it was, like, two episodes that you're on this stage, and then two episodes you're the next stage on the pyramid. And it felt like around that point was like, everything is terrible, and you don't think you can turn it around. And then it gradually pulls back up out of the hole. So it felt like a very classical narrative structure to me. And it was maybe benefited by being created by a novelist who could kind of plan it out that way. So what about Starfleet? And that Starfleet is once again, making bad decisions is and or is corrupt or has a problem, or has been infiltrated. I've seen a lot of complaints about this too, but like in my mind, when hasn't Starfleet been corrupt? When hasn't the crew of the Enterprise had to say, Command is doing stuff wrong, you know? Well, I think a couple of things. So first of all, there's been a lot of discussion, and one of the interesting things about Star Trek in the Age of Social Media is that, at least in this case, um, Michael Shabin, the the showrunner, has been super, super engaged with fans, particularly on Instagram. And I, the downside is that I haven't been able to read every single thing that he's written uh, answering fans' questions because there's so much of it, like, you know, 150 answers every week. But he's talked about how your reaction to the show will change based on whether you think Star Trek was always supposed to be about the present or about the future. Like, is it supposed to be a positive vision of the future or is it supposed to be like a mirror for our present. And I think maybe a bit of both, maybe it's not never been one or the other, but certainly there's there was a lot of effort put into making it mirror our present and I appreciated that this really felt like the things we were seeing in Starfleet mirrored the the crisis of confidence that we have in many of our own institutions. Yeah, I always felt like Starfleet was a place where you could make what you wanted of it for the most part. it's If it's supposed to be as big and as vast as it is with so many leaders involved and, you know, I guess I did see this particular iteration of Star Trek being very much representative of the disappointment that some of us feel about our current administration and the kinds of messages and wording and and just, I don't know, it's hard for me to grasp thinking of the whole of Star Trek. Uh, and when I say the whole of Star Trek, I guess I mean the whole of the Federation leadership or Starfleet leadership to that degree as being completely corrupt. I feel it maybe was probably kept to the top. Not everybody has the same 
ideas about what Starfleet does. And, and I think, you know, thinking back to Trek and especially TNG, the way that Picard was literally like this governor of a floating city, you know, he was kind of mostly where the decisions ended You know, he got to use his own idea of what he believed in what Starfleet represented and apply that to all the different places that he was. But different captains had different ways of doing that and different different captains and admirals had different ways of interpreting the orders that they were given and whether or not they were going to follow those orders or not. So I don't know. I just I feel like it's a lot more complicated than saying, well, Star, you know, Starfleet's now corrupt. I just think it has to do with different people interacting and acting and making decisions about what's going on in that particular universe in different ways. Right. And I think the the thing about the question of like, is Starfleet corrupt? We we certainly know it was infiltrated, right, by O. But the yeah. idea of the, the Federation banning synthetic life, I don't think that that was corruption so much as that's reactionary that's fear yeah yeah it was fear it was definitely fear and i think picard even gave a really (laughs) nice speech what was that episode six or seven something about you know we can't give in to fear Mm -hmm. as a way to sort of illustrate that point and i definitely see where that's coming from and and it's it was odd to me to make that decision in the first place for them to cut off all scientific research around AI and or positronic, you know, Android type research in the first place that that did seem uncharacteristic for me. So but I didn't, you know, I didn't think about it one way or another. I just thought it was an interesting choice. Yeah, I think that for me, one of the the biggest, I guess, holes in the season as a whole, though, was that I don't think that they handled O's infiltration of Starfleet particularly well, or it just felt like they didn't have enough time to really use it properly because we see her at the beginning and she's the head of Starfleet security. But the only thing we see her do is influence Nerissa, who's already a Romulan agent. So she could have done that just staying on Romulus and then tricking Gerardi and possibly brainwashing her. And even then, it all it really, like, it doesn't actually stop them from, like, she kills Maddox, but after Maddox has already said where the planet is, so it doesn't stop them from getting to the planet. It lets them track them for a brief period of time, but I feel like you didn't have to be the head of Starfleet security to make that happen. So, like, how did she actually infiltrate, and why was she not, you know, using her power as this commanding, in this commanding position to, like, mess with some officers well they they tell us that she infiltrated early on and rose through the ranks right in Mm -hmm. one of their their long pieces of exposition Mm -hmm. yeah but you never learn like how they found out about her you just kind of like yeah we're coming it's okay we all realized it was wrong We're, (laughs) we're coming now it's all good and i feel like we never got to see the consequences of like maybe some of the insidious ideas she had been promoting well i think they do also tell us that she was the one behind the attack on Mars, and the synth ban. Yes. Well, is it actually explicit? I think so. I mean, I think it's pretty clearly implied. Yeah. But I still feel like it is not 
it's too easily resolved and not clearly like there's no scene of her, you mm. know, escaping Starfleet and going to lead that fleet. We don't actually know how that happens. Right. She just appears on the warbirds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In leather. Sure. Yeah. I'm curious, though, Jarrah, was that you that mentioned that O tricked Gerardi? Yes. And is and that is that is a fact. Well, so this is an interesting point. See, because I, I was going to say, I didn't believe that she did trick Gerardi and that she just gave whatever point of view that they thought was going to become the, the big destruction. Yeah, I think O believes mm-hmm. what she's telling Gerardi. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I, I meant more that what she told Gerardi isn't actually the truth, but right. she believes it to be the truth. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then, you know, it's also debatable whether you think that that... Like, I personally didn't buy the fast reaction that Gerardi had. I know we're supposed to think it's a mind meld that mm. really influences her, and then this justifies everything she does going forward, and that's why everyone forgives her at the end. Mm. But I know that I was not the only one that struggled a little bit to accept that. Yeah, I did struggle to accept, you know, Gerardi being forgiven. And I was surprised that she didn't get killed off this season, frankly. But... It may have been that people just really liked her. I have no idea. But I mean, I this is just my own kind of thinking about it. But if O would, would have done anything, it may have been to implant some kind of suggestion that mm-hmm. this is what she should be doing in order to stop what is going to happen. Yeah, I don't feel like we know Gerardi, to be honest with you. Yeah, and we don't know O either, you know? We don't know a lot of these characters very well. Even though we spent almost the whole season with Gerardi... In in our main cast, she was never, almost never, not under the influence of someone else, mm. right? She yeah. was under O's influence, and then she was pretending to go along with, with the synths, and she was pretending to do all these other things, or she was lying. I Only the very first time we meet her, when Picard goes to the Daystrom Institute, can we assume that that is what she's actually like. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I would like to talk about Gerardi a little bit more. I think when she, when it first started out, I also thought she would be like a Barkley or a Tilly kind of character. And mm. I was super into this because everyone else was super haunted. Mm. And I thought that that would be nice to have this more kind of classic Trekkian character of like, I'm just super into science and also slightly awkward. <laughs> but then it almost, it very quickly turned it out that she's super haunted too. And then she kills Maddox. And I know Sue has some thoughts on the, the Maddox Gerardi relationship that I also share. Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> and then the whole thing with Rios and. Like, I think Alison Pill did a really good job with a very challenging part because we, it, it is, it kind of leans in a bunch of different directions. But I also found the scene or the episode where she injects herself with the thing to disable the tracker. But it, it also is kind of a self harm moment. And even in the next episode, because at first I thought she's killing herself. Like, I didn't know what she was doing. And then in the next episode, it says, or she says that she thought that she, like, she might as well just die. And to me, like, that was horribly shocking. And I really disliked that moment. And I think that was maybe even, okay, it was not the same episode that they killed Hugh, was it? Yes, it was. Because that was the episode I was like, okay, guys, this is too much for me. (laughs) And I really found like those two things just to me over the line. I know people have different lines and for some it was Echeb. 
Some people probably never cross their lines. But those were two moments that to me were just like more than I felt that I could handle and that were actually necessary. I thought that it was just kind of cruel. As just an aside, because you brought up Icheb, Jera, I was, I will yeah. say I was one of those people who was really, really super disappointed that he went out like that and so quickly. And then I started thinking, wow, they actually froze a male character in order for mm-hmm. a female character to have a foundation of, you know, hurt and betrayal and a reason to go off and do the things that she was doing. And I, I was like, okay, I can, I can get, I can get on board with that. But I, I still really was kind of disappointed that he, he was taken out. Yeah, that is super interesting. I mean, they basically did say this is, yeah, we basically fridged him. They didn't use those words, but that was the justification for that level of graphic violence that we needed to show how traumatizing this was to Seven in a very short period of time. And that's the excuse for for fridging a lot of women characters in the past. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, to me, because it didn't have quite that baggage, it didn't bother me in that way. But I can definitely understand why it was bothersome for others. Jumping back really quickly to Gerardi and Maddox. Yeah. There's clearly a rather large age difference in that relationship Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we find out in the novel that he was actually her professor so this is also teacher student yeah and it just feels real gross to me (laughs) just and and the like the power dynamic is off the i mean we'll talk about this more next time but their relationship in the book, it just is very uncomfortable to me when I read it. Mm. Then, of course, she murders him <sighs> and then sleeps with Rios to, what did she say, like, fill the hole in her for a couple of hours or something? This is a quote from uh, Shaben, and it's in the context of a discussion about sexuality and uh, queer identity. And we'll get more into that part later. But he's saying that... For Gerardi, it's actually not about sex at all or sexuality. It's about her devastation, her isolation, her guilt. She's self-medicating essentially with sex. It's not there to say, hi, here's two characters and they're heterosexual. It's there to say, here's an effed up person reaching out to the person that, with a limited range of candidates, not only does she find the most attractive, but objectively speaking, he's incredibly gorgeous and he's not wearing a shirt. So many things to quibble with, but I will say like on the the thing with her and Rios, so I like Rios a lot as a character. If I had to like list more people in my favorite new characters, I think Rios was pretty darn cool and I love the multiple EMHs or like the different holograms. Yeah. Like the, the one where Rafi pulls all the holograms together is one of my favorite scenes. But the, it, I think it moved pretty quickly but then what i actually found worse about it is then by the end it's like their boyfriend and girlfriend now like they're kissing all the time even though so much has happened and so it's moved past that we're just going to make a mistake right now moment and now it's they're basically going out and i really dislike the scene where sutra is about to do the mind meld and rios is like hang on hang on i am her boyfriend and must protect uh. her uh yeah Yikes. Interesting. And these, ugh, both mind melds, I would argue that neither is consensual. Yeah, I mean, I think the Sutra one slightly more so, because she had that moment where Rios intervened and she could have used that as an out. But she has so much guilt and 
kind of trauma that I don't think, you know, she probably would have felt like she could assert herself. Hmm. To me, it was weird that Sutra could even mind meld. <laughs> yeah, that was what I was going to say, because I, I didn't understand how that could actually work if Sutra was an android, you know, similar to Data's make makeup, but I guess a bit, you know, afterwards, obviously. And I was, yeah. I was very confused by that whole thing. Like, how in the world would this person be able to mind meld in the first place? So I, I just kind of left it at that and didn't think too much more about it. But yeah, she could easily have just like put some little device on her head and extracted the memory engrams or something. Right. And then like, you know, that would have been to me more believable. Maybe it's not so much a mind meld as a neural interface. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which I still don't understand if it's <laughs> positronic versus a human organic brain. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Gerardi was a character that I, I really, really wanted. Like, I thought she was going to be my favorite character. I still have some issues. I, I think I like who I imagine she could have become, but I, I find her relationships very problematic and it makes it hard for me to be super enthusiastic. I, I like when she's sciencing by herself. I don't so much like when she's doing things that are about Maddox or Rios. Or when Soong is like, you should feel horribly guilty because you <laughs> extinguished this bright light that was my egomaniacal bro science <laughs> bud. Like, it's basically these, like, two, these two, like, white guy scientists who think that they are the most important people in the galaxy. And then Soong is like, yes, my friend was totally the second most important person next to me. And you, little lady, should feel really sorry. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to talk about it mirroring our current reality, that's definitely a mirror of our current reality. And I think that's the whole point of Star Trek, is that you can't arrive at a really great decision or one of the best decisions that you can get unless you have the minds of so many different people contributing to that conundrum or that problem or whatever it is. And that's what let me down. That's what let lets me down a bit in Picard overall, I would say. And just being able to see different people with different abilities, with different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different cultural identities coming together to talk about and or solve a problem in a way that works best for everyone. And I'm just, I'm tired of the representation of the, that, that few that, you know, the white male majority. So I think that might take us into another one of our points, which is racism and colorism in Mm. the show. We had several people uh, point out, especially on Twitter, that almost every single person of color was killed on the show. Someone else pointed out that the majority of the synthetics, if not all of them, were light-skinned or presented white. And if that is their ideal society, that is a little disconcerting, certainly. Yeah, and also um, we had a comment on Twitter that was about specifically in the first few episodes that there were two very violent deaths of black men, Daja's boyfriend and the Romulan senator that is beheaded. Yeah. Again, maybe an example of like, you just thought you were doing diverse casting and probably didn't deliberately put that there. but when it happens, it can be pretty disturbing. Well, and I'm 
I know they're different writers' rooms and different shows, but I'm starting not to buy that anymore because this mm-hmm. happened in Discovery season one, and there was an outcry about it, and that is the explanation we got. It just happened that way. This is the casting we did. Almost like a we didn't realize. I particularly don't buy it when these are basically background characters. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not principal characters. So you could have thought harder. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it would have been very, very easy to switch. (laughs) In both cases, those those two characters who who meet a violent end appear and are killed in the same episode. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely noticed Dodge's boyfriend being offed pretty quickly. I didn't feel too good about that. My guess is somebody would use the excuse that, hey, it's an alien. It's not really a quote unquote black person, but anyone who is, you know, of a different ethnicity and or within any of these alien species, any of these alien, you know, folks that they bring onto the show, it mirrors what we would expect in the human species, I think. And so it's very difficult to not see things like that. Interestingly enough, I found kind of annoying to me, was it the second episode where Picard actually did the um, interview with the so-called journalist Mm. uh, woman who was asking him about why he left Starfleet and what was wrong with Starfleet. I thought that was pretty interesting. And it felt, I wanted, I wanted more. I mean, it's hard because you have certain people coming in representing these characters that are there for one thing. You know what I'm saying? Like that guy was there to be Dodge's boyfriend for two minutes. That woman Mm -hmm. was there to play a journalist for two minutes. And, you know, some of these other background characters were there specifically to you know, pick a fight with Picard or or do something else. And so that was their function and now they're gone. Applying diversity to those roles to me doesn't make a whole it's not that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I I see what they're trying to do, but at the same time, what really matters is when you have very diverse characters in lead roles and how we can see them portrayed as whole beings and not just pieces of a plot that need to be executed. Totally. It it certainly, I think, makes the world feel more real if the diversity extends to your background characters. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't do a whole ton of good if that's not reflected in your main cast as well. Mm. I think you can get into, you know, well, what would the solutions be? And you know, certainly I'm not saying don't ever kill anyone off or only kill off white characters or like, you know, yeah. keep a checklist and make sure it's proportional to the population. <laughs> like you have to be doing good storytelling, but you should be able to justify your reasons for doing things. And I, you shouldn't end up with these patterns all the time yeah. where it's yeah. it's mostly people of color getting killed. And what I think to me was just a bit of a sign of a blind spot is you know, we talked about this this argument that Picard is supposed to mirror today's society, and in many ways it does. There's there's really strong themes about xenophobia and like um, fear of um, refugees, so like or um, Islamophobia um, in terms of the the synth attack on Mars. You have messages about corruption and about trusting our institutions, mm-hmm. and messages about tolerance and about you know the potential d- dangers of AI, but the importance of scientific research. But then 
what is really just like falls out is there's really no attention to to like privilege and with the exception of Riker and Troy lecturing Picard and Nepenthe which is some of my favorite parts of the whole season that you know no one points out how super lucky Picard is Oh, Raffi does. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, she really, she brought it up and out. <laughs> yeah, but then in uh, Michael Shaben says that Raffi's situation is largely self-inflicted and her reproach of Picard for his, quote, fine chateau is self-pity. Not even the Federation can help people who aren't ready or looking for help. And, you know, like I said, I haven't read everything he said, and that was back on episode three. Um, so it's possible he's rethought that a bit since, but that was around this discussion about why does Rafi basically live in a trailer and he lives in a chateau. And when you look at today's society, mm-hmm. like there's some pretty clear reasons, like pretty clear manifestation of privilege there, if you were going to make an um, analogy there. But Shabin sees this more as a result of Rafi making individual bad decisions, which is also linked to her addiction. And I feel like that is... Given that I think they thought very carefully about most of the other social messages, to me, that's really disappointing that they kind of fall back on these, what I see as outdated excuses for inequality, mm-hmm. and as well as outdated uh, explanations for addiction as uh, like as a personal character flaw versus a health problem, and one that has uh, social determinants. There's so much that could be there. And I think a lot that isn't with that situation Mm -hmm. with Rafi. We don't really see her struggle. We see her, you know, smoking on her vape. Then a few episodes later, she tells her son she's clean. And then we see her fall back into it again, into drug and alcohol abuse. But we don't see her really deal with it ever if that makes any sense. Yeah, she cries and Rios hangs out with her and then she's better. Right. Meanwhile, while this is happening, Picard is basically exploiting her and her connections mm-hmm. to to get what he wants. And then they just let her go back to her room and continue to, to get drunk. And nobody is trying to help her at all. Yeah. To be clear, I would not want Picard to intervene in like an authoritarian way in this situation. No, he's supposed to be her friend. Yeah, and he also doesn't know best, as they point out very accurately regarding Soji and Nepenthe. But I think, you know, one thing they could have potentially explored was using the EMH Mm -hmm. in a healthcare role, which could have potentially been interesting. But I think as it was, it was just not a very new way of telling an addiction narrative. And it's one that I think does disservice to people who actually struggle with addiction in our world today. In fairness to Picard, specifically, I think that and when I say Picard, I mean, the character, not the show. But, you know, one of the things that they brought him through, or one of the journeys that he was taking was kind of how to shed this authoritative figure that he is so well known to be and to take on a role of friend and or you know mentor or father or basically just closer connections to the people that he used to be in command of and I think that was something that he finally obviously came to terms with at the end of the show you know he's telling data that he loves him he's telling 
Rafi and Rafi mm-hmm. says she loves him. So, you know, whether or not he was there to help Rafi in her, I want to say lowest hour or not. I mean, clearly there was a lot going on and a lot to be paying attention to. I also feel like people kind of looked at it like, well, she's an adult. She can deal with this the way she wants to deal with it. Because I think that that's the the way that in which the character was kind of going in the first place. But it was clear she, when they first met, that she was very unhappy with him not coming to say hi or help her out at all or just to reminisce and that she would have welcomed that quite mm-hmm. a bit. But I think that was part of uh, uh, Picard's learning curve in terms of what it really means to have a family. I mean, even the in the very beginning with the awesome ex-Tal Shiar folks that he was living with at the Chateau, I wasn't quite clear what their relationship was for a bit, except for them kind of acting like servants in a way. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, if they were more or less a family, I didn't really see it that way so much as they were caretakers of this huge villa that he was living on. So yeah, I think they're housekeepers slash bodyguards. Yeah. And so I mean, his way of dealing with people had to change and his way of dealing with relationships had to change. And I think that's part of the complicated aspect of telling the kind of story that they're telling in Star Trek today versus the kinds of Star Trek stories that we got in the past. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep talking. This might be a super long episode. But Jared, do you want to tell people about Text Expander? Yeah, so um, we're pretty excited to have this episode be supported by Text Expander. I've just started using their product, their app and their extension. And I can see some ways that it's going to be super useful. So basically, the way that it works is if you type something more than three times, then you can make it a snippet and let Text Expander type it for you. So things like your address or, you know, a message to someone telling them you're going to be late for a meeting, or in our case, Shut Up Wesley <laughs> is 100% a snippet that is already pre programmed if you download the Star Trek quotes pack or you can make it say really any other of your favorite star trek quotes like women at warp a roddenberry star trek podcast exactly or now available in the podcast feed (laughs) yeah yeah exactly you can program entire you know responses to email questions that you commonly get there's also a thing that handles um, correcting common errors in other languages. So for me, I also work in French, and there's uh, one that is pre-available for you to use a pack of snippets that will correct your French accents. So super handy. And it's available for um, Mac OS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. So I'm interested in seeing how it's going to be moving forward and maybe checking out some of the webinars that they have on the Text Expander website. And if you'd like to try Text Expander, show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander and select Women at Warp from the drop down menu so that they know who sent you. So again, that's textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander and select Women at Warp from the drop down list. And as I mentioned, show listeners will get 20% off their first year of using the service. So let's get back into Picard. There is there are there are a few big things still on this list. But I want to talk about some queer stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow, there's so much for so little. I really love 
Seven as a queer character. I think this makes a lot of sense for her. A lot of people have been pointing out that Seven, as we see her on Voyager, is basically an adolescent, right? When she's learning about herself and learning to be human. So it makes complete sense that she has grown and expanded her idea of herself since that time. But at the same time, it annoys me that nothing is fully made explicit, right? There are definitely people who watch this show, including like people who update Memory Alpha, who think Seven and Bejazel were good friends. <laughs> no joke. Um, there are, there's also um, the really quick moment with Raffi at the end of the finale, where they're just gazing into each other's eyes and holding hands. I love it. I love the idea of Seven and Raffi together. However, did they even talk to each other mu much this entire series? Not really. And when they did, it wasn't it kind of contentious in Stardust City Rag? That's the only time I really remember it happening. So was that moment earned? Because it felt tacked on to me. Also, according to another interview with Shaben, Rafi had a previous romantic relationship with the captain, who she calls for help, Emmy. But how are we supposed to, are we supposed to infer that? So like, I mean, I, I love the idea that both characters are queer. But is it representation if it's only implied? I will just say I love Seven being queer. I love it. And it just made total sense to me when I kind of saw the whole show. I didn't, and I only picked it up, you know, when they got to the, what was it, Free Cloud. So after Stardust City Rag, which is the episode with Bejazel, I was totally, I'm like, I'm high-fiving a million angels. Seven is queer. This is awesome. <laughs> I was super happy. Even though it was such a small moment, I actually think Seven was just side note the my favorite part of this entire season mm -hmm. everything seven did regardless of these two tiny moments was also just awesome mm -hmm. her being the board queen and being connected to the cube mm -hmm. that was such a great scene getting a big elmore hug <laughs> i'm super into this seven i think it it goes so much it really like fulfills some of the potential and does you know move her beyond being that adolescent character who was very influenced by everyone around her mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was super happy about it. And then there was some question about whether it was intentional or not. And at the time, Shabin said it wasn't. But then, you know, later he said, well, it kind of was. And in Variety, he said, well, the way that people's identity is constructed with sexuality as a component of it, in my experience, it emerges in a much more organic way and not like wearing a t-shirt that says, you know, queer power or the equivalent in the 24th century. We get to know these characters the way we get to know real people. It emerges in conversation where it, when it would emerge in the conversation. Right. And I see what he's saying there. In real life, people don't normally, outside of like pride parades or like very safe spaces, walk down the street broadcasting their sexual orientation. But I feel like it's not that far removed from when the creators of TNG were saying, well, we can't have people holding hands in the background of 10 forward that are same sex because that would be tokenizing yeah. and you know and make using it kind of as an excuse yeah. and the you know and to their credit the um the interviewer says well you know but look at discovery and surely you should understand why people would find it significant to have it reinforced that this is actually how it was intended yeah. because otherwise 
the fans who object to it can just point to that and say, well, it's not really, it's not true, it's not canon. And if the show doesn't put the emphasis behind it, then it's, it's like, it just kind of is, gives them deniability and that's unfortunate. And then that was when he went into the comment about Gerardi and Rios and how that wasn't about heterosexuality. But the thing is, like, heteronormativity is about how actually heteronormativity, like, heterosexuality is about heterosexuality. And when you depict it, people see that as normal. And it's not just Gerardi and Rios in here. You have Soji and Narek. You have grossly Narissa and Narek. <laughs> you have uh, also Daj and her boyfriend. So you have several examples of heterosexuality throughout this season and then you just get these couple of tiny glimpses of queerness and to me that's not really enough that said i am super here for it and they've promised this will be explored in season two so i am ready bring it on yeah i'm not wanting characters to show up and say hi my name is seven of nine i'm an ex-borg and i'm queer now (laughs) like i'm but i also want it to be something that can't be denied when her relationship has become part of the story, which in Bejazel's case, which presumably in Rafi's case, it will be, right? Mm -hmm. And if in explaining to the rest of the group that she previously knew Bejazel and she said, we were together or we were lovers Mm -hmm. or we were whatever, it takes away that question. It takes away that deniability. Yeah. And that's why I'm frustrated. That makes absolute sense. And I mean, going back to what I said before about, you know, people of color being killed in the background as, you know, fodder or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, The same thing with making sort of gestures and or a handhold or something to that effect in the background that doesn't necessarily explain completely that that person is queer can be just as offhandedly dismissive. It's like modern day queer coding. Uh-huh. I think what makes it better than Star Wars, I will say, <laughs> is that it's significant characters. Yeah. So, you know, even though it could be Blink and You'll Miss It in both cases, Seven is a character with massive importance in the franchise. And I think it is a bit of a, like, a, an awesome risk to take her there. And I hope that they do it more justice in season two. And like I said, I'm excited about it. Yeah. And just as an aside, I, I'm usually pretty on board with the names that they give people, but Bejazel? <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't know. I had some issues with that, but that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> they just killed her off so we'd never have to hear that name again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, ju- and just to poke at your statement about Nerek and sister. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I was... um I don't know. I think I've had my my fair share of, you know, complicated emo boys for now <laughs> and as big characters in, in shows and movies that I've been watching. So, yes, I was. Yeah, I was over that. Yeah, the the Romulanisters. <laughs> as, uh, they were termed. That's a good one. That's a good one. I did not come up with that, but I saw it uh, going around on Twitter and I liked it. But actually, this segues pretty well into another topic that it was requested that we talk about by uh, Christian Janeway on Twitter about feeling like women's sexuality was presented as something that was dangerous and in need of punishment, pointing to Bejazel, um as one example that she's 
pretty kind of awful mercenary, and then Seven kills her. There's Agnes, who sleeps with a guy and then kills him and then sleeps with another guy. Sutra, I think, would be the best example of this, because she's, like, basically a walking demon seductress trope. Like, you can see the minute that she walks in, ooh, sexy synth, therefore must be evil. And Dodge's boyfriend also gets killed right at the beginning, and then Dodge gets killed, um, and they're kind of flirty and stuff. Um, so that's another area where, where you do kind of see a bit of a pattern that we are familiar with from media. I think it is just maybe something that warrants a bit more attention in future. This is true. I was going to say that, you know, in, in the case of Gerardi, at least, she didn't die, you know, so it wasn't like she was punished, but for her sexuality. But she also technically wasn't punished for killing Maddox either in the way that we consider punishment to be, you know, getting confined to a small space or, or either, you know, getting some kind of noble death in the end, but, you know, still not being able to continue on because they did such a horrendous act. Or even just having Picard give that really judgy look. (laughs) She didn't even get a really judgy Picard look. I was, what's interesting to me is I was a little bit distracted by Sutra actually being sort of portrayed as evil. Like it was clear to me from the Mm. moment she was introduced that she was not good news and something was going to happen that she was going to more or less, you know, turn to the side that we didn't want the outcome to be, you know what I'm saying? And and I was just thinking of that and and like if I'm thinking of it within the construct of the story that androids looking less human seem to be a bit more evil than the androids that looked more human. Mm, yep. And so that's what kind of got me. I was <laughs> not that I didn't notice she was sexy because she was very sexy, but um I, that my mind just went in a different direction with that, I suppose. We also had a comment about motherhood being punished um, in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read this from the, this tweet we received. Seven loses a son, quote unquote. Raffi loses a son. Deanna talks about the loss of her son in order to connect with Soji. This isn't parallels. It's writing that punishes motherhood in a way we haven't seen for fatherhood. Yeah, this was interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but I think when you do have three examples in 10 episodes, that that, that's a pattern. And it is really interesting to me. I mean, Riker has also lost a child, but he's not the face of it in the way that that Deanna is. Mm -hmm. And I mean, massive, have to massively shout out Marina Sirtis for that episode. That is honestly, I think, the best material she's ever been given as Troy and she really executed it really really well. So so yeah, I do think it's a pattern that is again worth taking note of and trying to see if you know this becomes a thing. I think in the past we've definitely seen issues around fatherhood in terms of like characters like Riker with daddy issues a lot in Star Trek and that didn't show up as much this time. Um, But we also see Gerardi framed as a mother to these synths. Although I kind of like when she's like, I'm not their mother, asshole. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I thought that that's that's an interesting way to see it. One of the things that I noticed when I went back and sort of did some rewatching of TNG episodes was how I didn't notice this before, but I kind of noticed a pattern of 
stories that involved kids on the Enterprise who'd lost parents who were in Starfleet based on, you know, Starfleet missions that went bad. And kids who had to deal with the loss of a parent and how that affected their ability to, you know, go on with their life and live on the Enterprise, et cetera, et cetera. So whether or not the sort of motherhood pattern of mothers losing their children is meant to be punishing, I don't think it's that that's what it's meant to be so much as maybe exploring what it's like to be a mother who has lost a child. So that's that's my take on it because I didn't particularly notice it being a pattern of punishment so much as it being something that was looked at to be explored through several different characters who had had that happen to them. That's just how I saw it. I mean, I think there's maybe something to the difference in how they present fatherhood through like Data and Soong and Maddox, which is like an inventor kind of figure versus like a mother would die for her children. Yeah, I think that's was also brought up on one of our social media channels. I forget which one at this point. The difference between paternity and fatherhood. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because they keep referring to Dajun Soji as Data's daughters, which, like, okay, but also no. I mean, like, he, because of his positronic brain, they are able to exist, yes, but he didn't actually create them. There's a question of whether, you know, he willingly gave that positronic neuron. Right. So did he even consent to their creation? Is he anything really more than a sperm donor? Honestly. <laughs> excellent point. That is an excellent point. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah. Like he had nothing to do with their creation. He had nothing mm-hmm. to do with Capellius or or the, the synth that, that Maddox or the other Soong built. Alton, that's his name. Yep. Did the other synths get to go hang out with Dead Data? <laughs> or was it just Picard? Like, was Dead Data only accessible to Picard? That was the impression I got, but why? But why? Because Picard maybe was the first person ever to have his consciousness, <laughs> if, if that's the way to put it. They did it to Joanna, Data's mother. They, so they have done it before, but only Nuni and Soong had previously been able to accomplish it, I believe. Right. And she also did not know that she was an android. Yes. So there was that. And it would have been super weird for her to hang out with her dead son, <laughs> who wasn't dead yet. <laughs> Speaking of dead son, this is my total ignorance. Was this other Soong person, Alton Soong, was he ever mentioned before Picard ever? Because I honestly don't remember. So they did just sort of, they did a Palpatine, right? Yeah, somehow. <laughs> when did he have the time to have this kid who Data in Picard's mind obviously knew about? Yeah, that was interesting, I found. Yeah. He's clearly like the least impressive Zoom that we never heard about him before. Like... <laughs> Like, Noonien Soong is just like, oh, yeah, my my genius kid over there. And, like, Alton Soong's, like, just waving in the background. 
And soon looks back at the audience and rolls his eyes. Yeah. There's nothing saying that he's a real human being except for him anyway, right? He could also be another android who doesn't know he's an android as far as we all know. <laughs> right. A lot of people <laughs> thought he was going to be lore. <sighs> I'm really glad he wasn't lore. <laughs> I did think that the the data death was was nice and touching and a nice way of rectifying nemesis a bit see i think that's actually our last really big topic on this list is the theme of mortality Mm. and how to reconcile with that well yeah this idea that that data's saying you know what makes it special is that it ends right yeah Mm -hmm. which i i think was kind of a beautiful moment and then is immediately followed by Picard being transferred into a synthetic body. Mm-hmm. Or I guess it's an organic body, but with the synthetic brain, something downloaded into the golem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Essentially making him the thing that he fought for this entire season. Right. Yeah, that's true. But even though they give him approximately the same number of years as he would have had without his brain defect, quote unquote, does that undercut? the message that they just served us about mortality. Well, and Rebecca on Twitter was also asking whether it undermines what previous Trek has told us about the value of living with a disease or a disability. Mm. That like, if now you can just put anyone in a perfect synth body that will just live a program number of years, or maybe like a randomly determined number of years. It's challenging. It, it's very challenging. <laughs> like, I don't know how I feel about it. I feel like... It does sort of undermine it if, you know, like Picard lived a really, really amazing life. And like if he was a real person who had done all those things and he died at that point, like he would be recognized for a lot of really incredible work. So why is like him getting another few years more necessary than anyone else? I feel like from a storytelling point of view. The writers are looking at a character with an established defect in his parietal lobe that could lead to any number of of issues, not just eromotic syndrome, because they never did point out what it was he was dealing with, and an artificial heart. So you've got two major health issues in a 94-year-old character, and it in some ways feels like this was a way to eliminate them both for however much longer they're yeah. going to to be running this story. Which can't be much longer. I think, I, I feel like the rumor is three seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's basically been renewed already for three seasons. But I feel like one of the downsides is I think they could have taken the brain defect as something that was non-terminal and degenerative and could have had a really interesting exploration of that throughout three seasons. Yeah, it went real quick. And as it was, there was a bit of like a deus ex machina of like, we set up a problem and then we made it terminal for the feelings and now we have to resolve it. Oh, here's a golem, by the way. Probably none of you noticed that. (laughs) So it was a little bit predictable, but I, I mean, it was still, there were still a lot of really powerful moments born of those scenes. I really love the scene where, where Rafi tells Picard she loves him in a, like, what I felt was a very platonic mentory, like, love of re- and respect for her mentor way that I really valued. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure that on rewatch, I will think of more things to say because it 
it it is such a dense show but i uh, just in terms of you know all of the allusions and Easter eggs, like the Kazinti mention and things like that. There's a lot of things that are referencing like the signs and the ads in uh, Stardust City uh, rag, you know, ref- there's so many references. Um, one thing I will say, minor thing that bugged me was when Riker shows up at the end, which I was fine with, whatever, that's fine. But he makes that comment that's like, what was I going to do? Like hang out in the woods and make pizza all day? And this drove me nuts. It reminded me of when people give dads credit for, quote, babysitting their own kids. Or like, you know, oh, well, yeah, you can't expect a guy like Riker to just like sit still and clean house. And I know it's supposed to be a joke. And he obviously was totally enjoying himself making pizza. But it did just kind of remind, like, it kind of felt like it reinforced that. Like, meanwhile, Troy's home taking care of the kid. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you on that. Jira, I remember hearing that comment and thinking, wow, you just undermined everything that I saw in that episode that I thought was really cool about him being the cook and and Marina's character going off and being the person who was able to understand everything that was going on and helping people and whatnot. But besides that one thing, that whole Riker arriving to the rescue at the very end, my 12-year-old self loved seeing all those ships arrive. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, now I would love to see what they can do with huge armadas of ships that they obviously, and, I, and in, my, in my track head, I'm thinking, well, that must be because of what happened with the Dominion War. And now they had to like... Mm, rebuild the fleet. And what kind of fleet have we, you know, cr- created at this point? And these ships, they all seemed really, really, you know, incredibly technologically superior, but it also reminded me of the darkness in, at least in the picture where we saw Riker sitting of that yesterday's enterprise, um, like enterprise bridge versus the, the regular TNG bridge, which was brightly lit and everybody, you can see everyone, but it felt a little darker. It felt a little like uh, maybe this isn't the Federation that we, you know, this isn't the Federation that we always knew. And there's a difference about it that I would love to explore within the context of Starfleet. Yeah, I just want to mention a couple things that I really loved. One of which was Picard's time on the cube with Hugh. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think for so long that character has separated himself from the Borg of like, he was a victim and the Borg are monsters, but like he, it seems for the first time is really realizing that all of the drones are victims of the Borg. Mm. And that, Mm -hmm. that little scene where he was like, imagine that Picard, Jean-Luc Picard advocating for former Borg. And you just kind of see a change in his face. And it's, it's, it was really great. I, I loved that scene a whole lot. I love Rios, and I love that we are not seeing a homogenized culture for Earth at this point in Mm -hmm. in Star Trek. I have seen some concern from fans that, like, they were homogenizing Latin culture. I can't really speak Mm -hmm. to that, because that is not my culture. But that I think that a character is maintaining a, a culture that is not just Earth culture but is a specific culture from Earth is is great to see in Star Trek. I also really love that Elnor, a young male warrior, is the one who abides by the way of absolute candor and that we see mm-hmm. him openly sobbing 
mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the finale mm-hmm. because I don't think that is something that we see enough from young men on TV. Yeah. And I was going to say about that particular scene, it went from it went from Rafi being sort of in the mother position to both of them just openly sobbing and just holding on to each other. So, I actually really in, I won't say enjoyed that scene, but I it it did really hit the feels watching a lot of the emotions that were playing out during that scene. Who doesn't love space flowers? Come on. <laughs> <Those organs. laughs> I mean, those space flowers were totally awesome. (laughs) Hopes, dreams, thoughts, things we want to see in season two, just to to wrap up the discussion. More awesome queer seven and Raffi. Make me believe it. (laughs) I believe you can. Seconded. Thirded. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to see the rest of our, our next gen cast. Just to to like even it out for everybody, honestly. And uh, maybe this is like the the controversial opinion, but can we get away from the AI stories? Can we tell a different story that is not about artificial intelligence or synthetic life or positronic networks and, and do something new and different? We will see. I hope so. I'm hoping to be hit with something new and fun and different. But so far, I've been really happy with what has been coming out of these, you know, the writers and the the show in general. Interestingly enough, I loved all the episodes with Romulans way back in the day. Um, I think it was fascinating to see what happened to the Romulans and, you know, how they've evolved into this time because, hey, who knew they had a whole sect of warrior Romulan nuns? So cool. Can we get more of them? Can we see more of what they get to do? I would love more of the Kuat Malat. So that's definitely one area I'd love to go into a little bit more. But just as a fan of of Klingons, I just I want to know what's what's up with the Klingons, you know, this 18 or 20 years later. What's their role in all the things that have been going on? What's the what's the galactic political landscape like since we were mostly on the outskirts of what was happening during Picard? Would love to see just where things really stand and, and how how messed up is Starfleet if, if it is messed up from the point of view of Picard, you know? So I guess we'll either see or we won't see. But I actually enjoyed sort of the exploration of what's going on more or less outside of what's happening in the Federation in this particular season. The one thing we know we'll see is Guinan. Oh, yes. Yeah. I don't understand why they didn't show her this time, but I need I need some Guinan. So I'm <laughs> extremely excited to see what we come back as Guinan next season. All right. So I think that wraps it up for us today. We probably didn't touch on everything that there is, but we talked about a lot. So <laughs> uh, Jamala, if people want to find you on the interwebs, is there somewhere to follow you on Twitter? Yes, I have a Twitter handle. It is at J-A-M, the letter N, H-E-N, jammin' hen. Just think of a a dancing hen or something. (laughs) (laughs) And Jara? You can find me on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H penguin. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. 
To learn more about our show or connect with us, you can visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also send us an email at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, including the new Roddenberry Podcast Network Master Feed, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.